It's page 1151 if you're using uh, the Pew Bible. This is us uh, coming to the end of a section in the book of 1 Corinthians where we're exploring this whole book uh, under the title The Christ-Centered Church. And in chapters 8 to 10, there's been a whole section that's been devoted to this thing called idolatry. And uh, in the same way that Paul, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, dealing with the issue of sexual immorality, uh, said, flee sexual immorality, glorify God with your bodies. He's essentially summing up this section, saying, flee idolatry, glorify God with your everything. Uh, If you want to switch off now, it's up to you. But uh, please don't. Listen in. Let's read God's word together, shall we? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? And do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, But not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then Do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this living and active word that reveals who you are, what you have done for us, and what you call us to do in response. Please use this time. Teach us by your spirit. Challenge us uh, 
by your word. Change us by your grace. This we ask in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Uh, I have a problem. And I don't think I'm the only person that experiences this problem. Uh, I often live for my own glory. I often live for the sake of my own reputation. Uh, I, I live at times, not just in big things, but even in little things, like this world revolves around me. I've resolved in, in the past, many a times actually, with the, the American theologian Jonathan Edwards, resolved that every man should live to the glory of God, resolved that whether others do this or not, I will. I've prayed it, I've said it. I've taught 1 Corinthians 10.31 to my daughter when she was two as one of her first ever memory verses. That's how much significance I attach to and believe is attached to this, this text, this, this call to glorify God with everything that we are. But my life, and actually even my ministry at times, can become seduced by the enticements of self-glorification. Not God glorification. My heart can be captured by the need to hear the praise of others. To experience the buzz of being needed. The allure of standing out in the crowd, which is all just very ridiculous. But it affects life. Even everyday life. Not just the big things and the little things. It, it makes it hard to accept Criticism, even from people who love me, like my wife, or my brother pastors in, in the church, or from some of you dear folks. It makes it hard sometimes to submit to the counsel of others, hard to accept blame, uh, hard to share credit, even if something has been done well. No matter how much I'm able to convince myself that I really am able to do everything for the glory of God, there are plenty of occasions, in fact, regular occasions. It's a daily fight for me because I don't. Maybe you can associate with that to some degree. Plug yourself into the story. Tailor the details to your own time and place. We all need the reminder tonight that Paul offers us. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of self. Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? Do it all for the glory of God. Of God. It's a key theme throughout this whole book of 1 Corinthians. Paul has been talking, as I mentioned before, in these chapters 8 to 10 about the specific issue of idolatry. In chapter 8, addressing the presenting issue of Meat sacrificed to idols. Can we, can we partake in this meal or not? But Paul zeroes right in on actually the underlying issues. The pre, people's preoccupation with themselves. They're not thinking about other people. They're focusing too much on their freedoms. Claiming their rights. Their entitlements. It's all rather selfish. And then in chapter 9, Paul gives himself as an example of the right use of the freedoms that we have in Christ. He sees himself as being completely free, 
And the only thing to enslave him is the need to win other people for Christ. Because he sees that's how God is glorified most. And then in chapter 10, Paul has been encouraging the Corinthians, as Andy dealt with last time, to avoid Israel's mistakes. That's why he says in verse 14, therefore, he's already said escape. Now he's saying flee, flee idolatry. The question that we should be asking, the thing we're going to deal with in just in three little sections is, what will help us then to glorify God? What will help us to get this message so that the, the heart idols that we love and that we cling to are torn out of our embrace by God's grace? The first thing is to remember jealousy. Flee idolatry. Why? Well, essentially, God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Flee idolatry. The Greek word is fugo, from which we get our word fugitives. Gives you an idea, a picture of what we should be doing in relation to this sin of idolatry. We are to be like fugitives on the run from sin. Getting as far away from it as possible. The Corinthian problem is that they've been toying with idolatry. They've been toying with idolatry. And I'm not going to deal with this section between 14 and 22 in any great depth because it contains a lot on the Lord's Supper, which we're going to deal with in a couple of weeks anyway. So I will refer back to this. But suffice to say that Paul is saying, you guys are engaging in this idolatry because you're doing two things that are wrong. You are, one, underestimating the significance of the Lord's Supper. You're underestimating the significance of what it means to take bread and wine in your hands and participate in Christ, to have fellowship with Christ, to be one with him in his death as you feed on him in faith. The second thing is that they are underestimating the power of this idolatry. As Paul mentions here, behind every idol are spiritual forces of darkness. He says, it's rightly so in verse 19, idols are nothing. But in verse 20, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. So it's quite a simple thing that Paul is saying. You can't mix the two cups. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. And towards the end, verse 22, we see why. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It's another warning, isn't it? God is jealous for two things. God is jealous for his glory. In Isaiah 42, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Or Isaiah 48 for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not give my glory to another. The picture on screen is a, is a depiction of what happened in 1 Samuel 5. When the Ark of the Covenant, that thing that represented the very presence of God among his people, was captured. Taking, taken away uh, to Ashdod, where the Philistines were, and they put the ark beside this god, this image called Dagon. 
And each day when they went in to worship their God, what they found was Dagon had toppled. And 1 Samuel 5 explains to her, this is the Lord's doing. God will tolerate no rivals, whether in man-made temples or our hearts. God is a jealous God. He is jealous not only for his glory, but for his people's love and praise. Just as no husband who truly loves his wife could bear to see her in the arms of another man, so God is jealous for his people. He doesn't want to see them in the clutches of an idol. God has shown himself to be strong and powerful in his dealing with idols. As he has in the past, so he is today. That's why we must repent of our idolatry and flee from it. So do you really want to glorify God in everything? Not just in the big things, but in the little things. When you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All. Then flee idolatry. God is jealous. The second thing. is to look at service. God has designed the Christian life to be one of service. Verse 24 highlights this for us. As Paul says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. A Christian is the servant of all, of both fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. You could say especially so but also unbelievers too. When it comes to believers, Paul is encouraging us to ask the kind of question like, what will build up? Most helpfully, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see in verse 23, he says, and again, he's quoting the slogan, the catchphrase, if you like, of the Corinthian church. They're saying, hey, we know the gospel we know the theology. We've got that right. We are free in Christ. Idols are not. I can eat in idol temples. Da, 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 da. And their favorite catchphrase is, well, everything's permissible. We're free. But Paul's saying, but not everything is beneficial. The word there basically means not everything gathers together for good. And not everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. In other words, Paul is saying, Not everything builds up. Paul's great concern is for the glory of God in everything. Not just in the big things, but in the little things, the details of our lives. And he is eager to make sure that even in relation to our brothers and sisters in the life of a local church, that we do the kind of things that serve our brothers and sisters, not cause them to fall into sin. That was the big thing in 1 Corinthians 8, of course. And then he goes on to talk about unbelievers from verse 25 and following. So that helps us to understand that we should be asking the question, not only what is it, what will, what will help us to best glorify God in the service of our fellow brothers and sisters, but what will help people meet Jesus? Isn't that a good question to ask? When we're thinking about, should I do this or should I do that? Should I go out to this event or should I what should I do should I go and speak to that person or this what will what will help people meet Jesus 
And Paul encourages us here to do things to make sure that other people, we don't cause other people to stumble, uh, to fall. He's encouraging us to make sure that we don't get in the way of people being able to get to know who Jesus is and come to believe in him. So he's saying don't act in such a way that will prevent people from hearing this message of the gospel. You could say that's a negative presentation, but the positive presentation of it is that he says we should be aiming to glorify God by living in a way that will win respect. And when hearing for the gospel. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be such that I cause no one to be hindered in coming to Christ. I want, I want everybody to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and that should be the motivation for us. Even if you skip ahead to verse 33, Paul's given testimony of his own example. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. What's the purpose? So that they may be saved. Because God is glorified in the salvation of the lost, isn't he? So it's not about seeking our own advantage. It's not about being so preoccupied by ourselves that we do only what works for ourselves. No, I want to live in such a way that unbelievers are not distracted by my behavior. I want to think of them and all of my associations, even with other things that even appear unrelated. But to think of them as seriously as for their goods so that they see that Jesus is the only God. That's all we should be living for. And that is the greatest service that we can offer to anyone. Serve in such a way that they come face to face with Jesus Christ. Paul gives three specific scenarios here where there is concern expressed for the other person. So he says, first of all, in verse 25, just quickly, if anything is sold in the meat market. So in other words, if you're just going out to Morrison's and you're getting some meat in for for your family, uh, do what will help others to to meet Christ. Don't get in the way of things or become a stumbling block. And it's almost like Paul suggesting that, that, yeah, you, the the kind of legalist person, you know, you go up to the meat market and say, "Um, can I have that cut of sirloin, please? Where did you get that? Um, has it been sacrificed to any gods? You know, uh, did that come from the temple of Zeus? Paul's saying, don't even ask the question. Take your sirloin steak, go home, put on some liquid smoke and enjoy it to the glory of God. Goodness. That's what he's saying. Verse 27, he comes to another thing. And this is maybe a more common example for us. If you're invited to dinner to your friend's house and there is food laid before you, Maybe you're building a relationship with this guy or this girl. You've been praying for them. You've been looking for gospel opportunities. You know, doesn't believe in Jesus, but, and actually he's a worshiper of other gods. What does Paul say? If the, you know, it could have been sacrificed to an idol, but, but you know, he's just laying it out in front of you, but he's not really saying anything about it. What does Paul suggest? Forget about it. Eat. Enjoy it. But then in verse 28, there's a, there's a third scenario, and it's, it's kind of the second scenario but with a little twist. If you're at dinner and someone, your host probably, is, says this meat, enjoy, it has been offered to Zeus or something like that. Paul says, uh, encouraging us to ask the question, what do we do? He says, uh, don't eat it. 
Don't eat it. Don't just seek your own. Even if you're sitting there thinking, this looks really good. And actually, I might have to eat salad all night. Uh, Paul encourages us not to eat it. Don't stop and ask the question, well, what do I feel like doing? I am quite peckish. But stop and consider the question, who is at the dinner with you? Who is at the dinner with you? What effect might your actions have on them? Uh, What would your actions communicate? Are you, by eating, in some way affirming the deity that's just been invoked? What should you do? You know, the friend says, well, before we eat, I just want you to know this meat's from the temple dedicated to the idol. So Paul is saying in that moment, you could end up preaching or communicating a mixed message to your friend. To the point that if you go ahead and eat, they might think, well, he's really confused about his faith. If he says he worships this God, Jesus, but then is happy to come and eat effectively by my invocation at the table of Zeus. They might think you're multi-faith. That won't help the person you're eating with. In all these situations, the guiding motivation for us is, is, is about self-forgetfulness. And serving others. It's about making sure that you are not a stumbling block, but an usher to Christ. Now I know this is sometimes difficult for us to translate this to 21st century Edinburgh. Uh, We're not regularly going to shops and asking, was this meat sacrificed to Zeus? We're generally asking, was this meat beef? Or otherwise, really... But we have to be conscious of the the many different idols that we have in our day. You know, they're not just things made of wood, metal, or stone. There there are many things that people worship in their hearts that we could call idolatry. And I'm not going to go into this much because Andy dealt with this a fair amount last time. But let me just address one. I mean, one idol in our culture could be alcohol. We live in a culture that makes an idol out of weekends or an idol out of alcohol. And to, to some people, work is hell, weekend is heaven, alcohol is salvation. It's, it's what they do. What should we do in response to that? How do we forget ourselves and then helpfully serve others so as to not be a stumbling block to them but as an usher to bring them to Christ? How do we glorify God? Well, For a start, we can make sure that in our own behaviours, we are not uh, treating alcohol like our unbelieving neighbours do. We don't make it our preoccupation. Uh, We don't make it the highlight of our week. We don't make it the thing that we go to in dependence when we're stressed or things like that. We instead have the kind of mindset where we're thinking about the good of others over and above our own desires and even act in, a way, in such a way that demonstrates we're willing to sacrifice the things that we might be free to do, the things that we might enjoy doing, just so that it might not miscommunicate something about our stance on the gospel. So that's the second thing that we do, service, seeking the good of others. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, whether in the small stuff, in the big stuff, or in the small stuff, the seemingly mundane things, 
glorify God by forgetting yourself and serving others. Thirdly, glorify God by making much of him. I want to live for the glory of God. We see in verse 31, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Now, maybe you're sitting here asking the question, well, I've, I've heard this an awful lot. What does it mean to glorify God? I hear that phrase all the time. What does it actually mean? Well, forgive me for a wee second if I just take a little drink. I'll tell you, <laughs> there's jealousy in this room right now. I can see it. I love Costa Coffee. Uh, I do. I love Costa Coffee. Um, I love their mission. Do you know what their mission is? Our mission is to save the world from mediocre coffee. I love that. I love their methods. They're in complete control of the coffee making processes from start to finish, from sourcing to serving. I love that they want other people to know about this great coffee to the point that they've got gift cards. Uh, You can share the love of coffee with other people. I have openly and actively evangelized people into drinking uh, drinking Costa coffee, even over Starbucks coffee and Nero's. My, uh, my, My brother in particular, I said, why are you drinking Café Nero? It's so bitter. It leaves your mouth dry. Why are you drinking Starbucks coffee? You know, it's just warm milk. You know, you need an extra two shots just to even make it taste like coffee. It's ridiculous. No, you should drink Costa coffee. And I like it. Oh, that's good. It's a little bit cold, but it's still good. Still good. Now, what am I doing? I am glorifying Costa Coffee, not as an idol, but to illustrate what we should do when we glorify God. I'm telling you that I love it. I'm telling you that I I don't want anything in its place. I'm telling you that it's better than any other kind of coffee that you could offer me. And it satisfies me that I'm no longer craving coffee or shaking a little bit. I, I, I love the taste of it. And this is, in some sense, an illustration of what every part of our life should communicate about God. That we love him. That we do not want anything else in his place. That we know and love God to be supremely better, better by far than any other kind of thing that you could substitute into his place. And having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, I'm no longer thirsty or craving anything else in this world. Only him. Only him. 
John Piper is right. I love this. He's built his whole life on this phrase, really. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So how do we glorify God? Not only in the big things, the big decisions we have to make in life in relation to who we will marry or what job we will do or where we will live or those kind of things, but even in the the tiny little mundane things, we should live for him like there is no substitute, like there is no comparison. Like he is the one who satisfies. We should live for him, enjoy him, and know that even as we do that, we are doing what we were made to do. It's what, it's about being intentional, purposeful with our lives. It's what Paul's wanting us to do. To live in such a way, not only in the big things, but in the small things, to glorify God in everything. So that it honors the God who made us and who has saved us. To the point that we live this thoughtful life. How many of you like me can appreciate and see in our own lives that so often, all too often, our actions and words are, are thoughtless of God. We don't take time really to stop and consider, will this glorify God or not? That's a simple question to ask. When I'm making decisions, how is this going to glorify God? It's a good question to ask. And ask it not just in the big things, in the little things. When I'm, when I'm responding to criticism, how can I glorify God? When someone is thanking me and praising me for something I've done, how can I glorify God in that situation? When I'm in a relationship with someone, and we're wondering, is this going to go anywhere? Should we be getting married or something? The question is, how, how can I glorify God in this situation? When you're sitting in front of the doctor and receiving some bad news, how can, how can I glorify God in that situation? When you have a, almost a passing conversation downstairs after the service, how can I glorify God in this conversation? What does that look like? Paul's encouragement for us in this is forget about yourself. Flee idolatry. Serve others. Glorify God. Not just in the big things, but in the little things. He even encourages us to follow his example. 11.1. Follow my example. His example of humility has already been made plain to us in chapters 8 through 10. Forget about yourself. Remember in chapter 9? He laid down his rights so that others could hear the gospel. There was humility there. There was love. Think about others. He was making sure he never caused anyone to stumble. He mentioned that in chapter 9 as well. And in chapter 10, he's just said, whether believers or unbelievers, I'm trying to do what's best for them so that there will not be a stumbling block in their way, but they may be ushered to Christ. And his whole mission. Well, we've already highlighted that. In verse 33, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. It's living life with 
a purpose and an intention where you want the people you come into contact with to be ushered into Christ's presence to behold him. And Paul's example is, of course, really an imitation of Christ. Imitate him. It's a good way to glorify God. Talk about humility in our Lord Jesus Christ. You heard this? If you're here, you're not a Christian. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Talk about self-forgetfulness. Talk about self-emptying. Talk about humility. What about love? What about that selfless concern for other people? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a what? Ransom for many. Talk about mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a challenge to us. To think, speak and act with the aim of imitating Paul and imitating Christ to the glory of God. In all things, not just the big things but the small things so that we might not be a stumbling block for people getting in the way of people coming to know Jesus Christ but ushers. Introducing them to Christ. Our call is to lay aside our tendency to be preoccupied with ourselves. To wor- as we worship ourselves and forget ourselves for the sake of others. Now if you're here today and you're, you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you would not call yourself a believer... Um, I wonder how this sounds to you. Because actually that statement, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There are few statements that you will ever, ever hear that are as countercultural and counterintuitive as that one. Because what that principle does is that it, it starts everything and orientates everything with and around the Lord God in heaven. And it defines you. It defines all of us, actually, in relation to who he is. It says that, that me, you, our, us and our lives, they're, they're all about him. And it's really only about you to the extent that you relate to him. And actually that puts you and me truly in our place. You, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, uh, the call is for everyone to do what we were made to do and glorify God. That's what we were made to do. Here's the problem. You cannot glorify God as you should because of your sinful nature And your tendency to rebel against God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even if you tried on your efforts, you will not do that perfectly. You are therefore a sinner. 
and even an object of God's wrath. But here's the good news. There is one who did it for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who in his eating and drinking and whatever he did, did it, capital A-L-L, all for the glory of God. And here's his promise. That if you turn away from your idolatry and confess your sins and your need for forgiveness on account of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, coming to him, the only true God, you will be forgiven not only of your idolatry but your multifaceted sinfulness. You'll be inhabited by his spirit and given new desires, new loves for him and strength to glorify him until you see him face to face when all through eternity you will live to glorify the lamb who was slain for you. Are you living with this gospel intentionality? Are you ready to displace and ask for God's help to displace yourself from this thinking that everything revolves around you? To recognize that God is at the center of everything. He is the one that we should glorify. So that we flee our idolatry. Live for the sake of others so that they might see Christ and be ushered into the presence of Christ. And whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, whether in the big things or in the small things, do it all for the glory of God. It's a challenge for us. And may God help us to glorify him. Let's pray.